Hey everybody, Don Abernathy here. First, let me thank everybody for their continued support for the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your new favorite World War II-based podcast. I'm happy to announce that we are now available on the Stitcher podcast app. So if you have Stitcher on your cell phone or your tablet, you can simply find us by searching WTSP or What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. As our longtime listeners know, we changed our podcast distribution provider. But unfortunately, all the episodes that were uploaded originally with our previous provider are not showing up in Stitcher. And we feel it's very important to allow our entire audience to have access to all of our shows, especially those with our interviews with those who were there, our veterans and people who lived through the war. Therefore, if you see your playlist populating with a show that has the abbreviation in the description of SRP, meaning Stitcher Republish, Simply keep in mind that these are our original episodes that you've heard in the past, but we have simply republished them to make them available to our entire audience. Feel free to listen to them again, or wait for the latest episode to come out every Sunday. Thanks so much, and on to the show. The 24th Corps was activated at Fort Schaffner, Hawaii on April 8, 1944. From October 17th through December 26th, of 1944, the 24th Corps participated in the invasion of Lyette in the Philippine Islands with the 7th Infantry Division and the 96th Infantry Division along with the Filipino guerrillas under the command of General Douglas MacArthur. The operation, codenamed King II, launched a Philippines campaign of 1944-1945 for the recapture and liberation of the entire Philippine archipelago and to end almost three years of Japanese occupation. During the campaign on Lyette, with the assistance from the Filipino Regular and Constable Forces of the Philippine Commonwealth Army and the Philippine Constabulary Military Units, the 77th Infantry Division came under control of the 24th Corps. From April 1st to June 30th of 1945, the 24th Corps and its divisions participated in the invasion of Okinawa. In September 1945, after the surrender of Japan, the 24th Corps moved to Korea where it remained on occupational duty until its inactivation on the 25th of January, 1949. Hello everybody, and welcome to the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. I am your host, Don Abernathy, and sitting in with me today is my silent co-host, Sammy the African Grey. So if you hear a chirp or a chatter in the background, it's probably her. So I'm very excited to announce that this week's episode will have our first interview with a World War II vet, um, something I want to point out about these interviews you will hear on today's episode and in the future, to make the interview more palatable to our veterans and to make it and to make it as least difficult as possible. More often than not, I will go to them with the mobile studio set up in their house or in their preferred location and interview them there. So you will notice the sound quality will be a little different. You'll probably hear some background noise. But um you know, these guys are gracious enough to give me some of their time. I, I want to make it as easy as possible on them. And with some of them, mobility will be an issue. So please just take that into consideration when you enjoy our interviews with our vets. Um, you know, we got to go mobile to help these guys out. Uh, last week, you heard Mike and I talking about our experience training with World War II armor. I would like to invite you all to go to YouTube, check out the channel Military Collectors. From what I understand, they're supposed to air these episodes on the Pursuit channel, which is a channel on DirecTV and Dish Network. They were supposed to air back in December. I don't know if it got pushed or a little bit or not. But anyhow, go on YouTube, look for the Military Collectors channel, 
Season 2, Episode 1, we filmed out at Craigie's Farm. Uh, the interview, the great Rabbi Rob talked to him about all his equipment, all his tanks, his Jeeps, his half-tracks, all his other uh, hardware. But in the opening scenes of the show, you will see myself and a few of my friends doing a little skirmish reenactment. I'm easy to find. I'm the tall guy whose helmet falls off when I go to pull my fallen comrade by his suspenders. Check out Military Collectors on YouTube and subscribe. Um, got a lot of interesting stuff on there. And before we get on with the interview, I just want to do a little, uh, let's call it World War II news. I think we may have our first contestant for Dick of the Year, Sammy. Um, this is from the New York Post. Headline states, historian pleads guilty to stealing World War II dog tags. So check this out. Baltimore, Maryland. A French historian pled guilty Thursday to stealing dog tags and numerous other documents of U.S. servicemen who planes crashed during World War II. Anton de Hayes, a 33-year-old author whose historical research focused largely on events at the French beaches of Normandy, where President Dwight D. Eisenhower troops launched the D-Day invasion, pled guilty to theft of government properties from the National Archives and Record Administrations. Between December of 2012 and June of 2017, de Hayes visited the public research room at the National Archives at College Park, Maryland, and stole at least 291 dog tags and 134 records, including personal letters, photographs, and small pieces of U.S. aircrafts down during the war, the U.S. Attorney Office in Maryland said in a statement. Prosecutors say that DeHay sold a majority of these items on eBay and elsewhere. Court documents show that he tried to lure one prospective buyer with gritty details of the airman's dog tags, saying some were burnt or shared stains of fuel and blood, describing them as very powerful items that witnessed violence of the crash. This guy is a dick. If you want to read the rest of the story, find it on our Facebook page at the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. Uh, the fact that they're calling him a historian really pisses me off because the purpose of a historian, and there goes Sammy in flight. So Sammy didn't want to sit on our perch very long. The purpose of a historian is to contribute items to the National Archives, not to steal them um, and to sell them on eBay and to make a profit. This is insane. This guy is disgusting. It'll be interesting to see what happens to him as far when his court dates come. I mean, let's be honest. This guy is a dick. He's a douchebag. Uh, your role, your job, your principal mission as a historian is to dig up facts, to lay them out in a palatable way, and to submit them to the National Archives. Not to go down the National Archives and steal shit so you can make a quick buck off of our veterans' history. Uh, I don't know if this guy was here on a work visa, if he's part of, you know, how he got here or why he's even here, but send this dick back home, and uh, please, no one buy his effing books. So yeah, there is the number one contender in uh, this year's 2018 Dick of the Year Award. It'd be really hard to beat this guy, but, you know, humans do horrible things. So, um, Anton D. Hayes, you're a dick, and I hope they throw the book at you. And you make the entire historian community look bad. I hope you're proud of yourself. Not that you give a damn. But, um, so that's a quick little snippet in World War II news. I saw that online uh, a few days ago and it really, uh, well, pissed me off. So I just wanted to share that with everybody. Don't buy this guy's books. And, uh, 
now Sammy's a little settled down and we're ready to go for this interview. So please enjoy this interview with the great Martin Ellix. Hey everybody, welcome to the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. I'm your host, Don Abernathy, and today I'm very honored to be joined by a World War II vet, Mr. Martin Ellix. Thank you, Martin, for allowing me to come over to your house today and uh, spend a Sunday with you. You're welcome. So uh, let's start at the beginning. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Farmington, West Virginia. What was Farmington, West Virginia like back in, in the uh, late 30s or well, 40s? Well, it was a small uh, merchant center okay. surrounded by about a half a dozen coal mines. And uh, that's what drove the economy. So was your family coal miners? Yes. My dad was a coal miner ever since he was 16 years old. Yeah, I come from a family of coal miners from eastern Kentucky. That's yeah. where my grandfather was working before he joined the war. Yeah. Do you remember where you were on Pearl Harbor when Pearl Harbor happened? I was cleaning windows in the house. Really? Outside on a ladder. Uh, cleaning my, uh, my mother sent me out to clean windows. <laughs> How old were you on that day? Well, God, let me see. I can't. I really can't recall, but I was... Uh, Had you already graduated high school? Oh, no, no, Okay, no. so you were still in high school. No, I was still a teenager. So you were probably, probably 15, probably, 16? Probably, in my guess, in, um, yeah, freshman or sophomore in high school. Now, were you, uh, did you enlist or were you drafted into No, the I was drafted. What year were you drafted? Uh, 45. 45? Yeah. Do you remember uh, the day you left for boot camp? Not really. Nobody paid that much attention. Did you uh, go by train? Yeah, or? yeah. The, all I did is a, uh, you know, the draft board. You had to report to the draft board, and and they give you some inst instructions of where to go. You know, I was supposed to go to Fort Knox, Kentucky. Okay. And uh, they give you a, a train ticket, and so you, uh, I set somebody dropped me off at Fairmont, which is a was the closest city, you know, uh, actually, uh, Farmington was a suburb of Fairmont. Was yeah. this your first time experiencing a train ride, or had you been on trains before? I had been on trains a couple of times, and of course, uh, at, uh, whenever I grew up, there was a streetcar type of thing, and they used the same rails as the sure. train did, so, so, uh, no, that was uh, that was probably one of the first times I'd been on any extended tra train ride. Yeah, I can imagine as you're sitting on this train and you're heading out to boot camp, you're probably had all sorts of emotions going through your head. I mean, one, you're on this new adventure, right? But two, you knew you're going off to war because this. I mean, this is 1945 at this point. Right. American yeah. involvement had been since you know August of 42 when the Marines yeah. landed in Guadalcanal. Right. Yeah. And I'm sure you had seen some newsreels, so I'm sure your emotions were probably all over the place at that point. Well, you know, I, I was sort of looking forward to it in, in a way because, you know, I was, you know, that, that town I grew up in was like a big park. Everybody knew everybody. Sure. They even knew the dogs and cats' names, you know. So uh, it, was, it was, like I say, it was a... A very uh, shielded uh, type of a, a growing up experience, you know. You had uh, very little contact with the, the outer world type yeah. of thing. So. so you pretty much couldn't do anything in your town without everybody knowing right, what you're doing. Right, right. Oh, no. Well, uh, actually, if 
Uh, I remember when I was, uh, you know, uh, like 10 or 11, walking downtown and the neighbors would send me home. <laughs> you don't belong here. Martin, your dad's <laughs> looking for you. <laughs> but so uh, that was the kind of community it was. Uh, uh, they, they sort of looked out after each other and kept you, kept you sort of uh, honest, you know. So you arrived at Fort Knox for basic training. Yes. Um, I'm assuming, obviously, you went through the training, and then at some point near the end of the training, you get assigned to what you're going to be doing, correct? Or is it earlier on so you can train on it? Well, what they did is they, uh, they uh, it was a sort of a general type of a, uh, a training type of thing, Army training. Sure. And, you know, where you, you know, did the bivouac and... Um, Rifle drilling. And rifle drillings of several types of drilling and stuff like that. And then uh, they uh, sent us to Pittsburgh, California, and that's where we got some additional training, which is, uh, if I recall, it's just south of San Francisco or in the Oakland area. Now, at a certain point, you became assigned to the artillery. Yeah, at, at Pittsburgh. Okay, and that's Pittsburgh, where you, yeah, you got all Pittsburgh, your artillery yeah, training. Yeah, Pittsburgh, California. What gun did you man? Well, we had two two different guns that we had be proficient at. Actually, three, really. One was a fifty caliber machine gun. You had to be able to manage that. And we had the 105 howitzers and the 155 howitzers, and you had to have training on all those. And they were, the 55s and 105s were very similar, you know, it's just a bigger bore. Bigger bore? Yeah. What was your key role? Were you the loader? Were you the oh, ammo no, carrier? They, they put you on everything. Yeah, you got to pretty much learn everything yeah, in case yeah, something you happens. Had to, you, had to, you had to learn everything. What was your preferred role? Probably the one with the least amount of activity, I would assume. <laughs> well, the, uh, the best role was, uh, was uh, sort of a... Uh, uh, the lanyard part, you know, uh, firing the lanyard on on the gun was easiest and less most, heavy lifting, the most fun, <laughs> because uh, most of it was uh, passing shells and and uh, stoking the stoking the howitzers, you know, and that type of thing. Now, when it came to aiming the howitzer, obviously, I'm sure there was some math, some skill, and some map reading involved. You had a forward observer calling in, right? Your, Either your that fire. or they either had forward observers or they had uh, some light uh, planes, like uh, cub planes, you know, that were actually, they were canvas. They weren't even uh, metal, you know, just light planes. Was the, the aiming operations, the, the targeting itself on the howitzer, I mean, how did, how did you guys figure out the adjustments? I mean, obviously there's levers to adjust the vertical, the horizontal. Right. Did it take a while to get proficient at sighting that in? Were some guys better than others? Or was the machine pretty much so well manufactured and well, designed that it kind of came easy? No, it was it was fairly easy because they called back, you know, if you were to the left uh, 50 yards or short or something like that, they, uh, you know, they called it back and you you made the adjustments. And, and uh, like I say, they had... Uh, uh, almost, I can't remember what they called the, th the thing on the howitzer. It was like a almost like a, a compass thing that okay. you could adjust so that uh, you know you could uh, 
go left, right, this type of thing. So. After boot camp, uh, what what division were you assigned to? What was your final home? Uh, it was the Seventh Division, Twenty Fourth Corps. Okay, and you you finally shipped out to go overseas. Where was your first station? Well, like I say, most of the, I think most of the war was pretty much over. Uh, by that time, I think we ended up in the Marianas. Okay. And I think we, uh, from the Marianas, I think they were, uh, I can't remember whether they told me they were in the Kwajalein's or something then in the Marianas. And, and then when the war was over from the Marianas, they went into Korea. Now, when they shipped you off from California, yeah. were you on a Liberty ship? Were you on a troop transport no, no, ship? No, it was Liberty ship. <laughs> no, it was a Liberty ship. From what I understand, now obviously this is later in the war, so perhaps maybe the the troop level on that ship was less than what it was in early stages, but from what I understand, the living conditions on there were quite cramped, quite sweaty. Oh, no, and it, the ship was filled. Yeah, was it? Yeah, ship was filled. Did you spend most of your time down below, or did you try to get as much fresh air? Well, uh, to be truthful with you, what we did was we sat down uh, under the deck mm -hmm. and played poker most of the time. How'd you do? Pretty good, really. The drone? Yeah, <laughs> pretty good. Yeah. Take everybody's money. Yeah, it was it was it was it was pretty good. Do you remember vaguely how long that trip was from California to the Marianas? No, I don't. Yeah. No, I don't remember. It was it was quite a while though because there's uh, they they called them tin cans and they didn't uh, move very fast. Well, and also from what I understand, you had to zigzag to kind of avoid. Oh yeah, like I said, the they submarines. had yeah they had uh, they had their own uh, way of getting there and doing things. Yeah. Now while you're on the uh, transport, obviously you played a lot of poker. At that point, did the army kind of give up on finding busy work for you guys? Did you still do calisthenics? No. Any training, or no. did they just let you no. to your own devices? Absolutely and... not. Yeah, they that, give you a bunk and, and three meals. And that's it. And the rest of it was up to you. And they did give you a, a, an army blanket. <laughs> the old nice wool blanket. Yeah. <laughs> Do you remember if you were on a lower bunk, did you have to climb up? Were you on like the fourth, fifth one no, up? No, yeah, there was, on this ship there was three bunks and I was on the middle bunk. Which means the guy above you was constantly stepping on you when he was trying to climb up. Well, it wasn't all that bad. Really, like I say, usually, uh, you know, after your evening meal, uh, things sort of settle down. People would, you know, you know, they'd climb up and go to sleep. And if you was interested in poker or something, you stayed up a little later and that type of thing. But, uh, but there was, you know, a there was really was a curfew where everything had to shut down. Sure, after, you know, after dark, obviously right. you can't be lights on and right. smoking lamps yeah. out so there was a curfew so that everybody had to turn in at any point during the transport out to your final destination did you ever end up in any sort of trouble were you kind of a you know did you like to have fun or were you basically just kept your head down mind your own and and went no, about your day like i say it was a the people that you were traveling with you know you did basic with and you did the training in pittsburgh California with so it was pretty friendly atmosphere you know you knew people first name type of thing and 
So it was a lot of camaraderie, you know, because you knew these people quite a while. And as you stated before, you're from such a small town, it was probably exciting to you to meet new guys and, and make new friends. Oh, yeah. Like I say, the uh, that draft that I was in was uh, mostly, uh, as I remember it, from uh, people in uh, West Virginia. And a lot of them was from southern West Virginia. And they weren't... Uh, really very sophisticated uh, kids, you know, we were all kids. And a lot of them weren't, weren't even graduates from high school or, you know, they didn't have a degree or anything, so. Just started working early to help support their families? Yeah, oh yeah, 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 that's, at that time, it was a different culture, you know, than it is nowadays, you know. You know, a lot of people just didn't, think uh, high school education was that that important you know unless unless your parents was pushing you to, for a higher education you know sure I mean because you know once you get to your your early teens you're basically part of the workforce you need right. to help help around the house whether right. you're on a farm right. Right. or you know in the suburbs you go out and yeah. do what you could do because yeah. and plus you guys were at that point 45 you know the depression was kind of wrapping up but yeah but you guys had lived so long in, in an era, in a time, with shortages and work oh, shortages God, and yeah. unemployment. Yeah, yeah. When I was a kid, you couldn't even get a job on the lawn. Yeah. And adults were doing it. No. Uh, it, so at that work, point, your work was very scarce at, at that time. Now, did that affect the coal mines then, or were the coal mines still going pretty strong? Well, the coal mines were working, uh, but. You know, they uh, they were limited capacity, you know, how many people they could hire. And I suppose people gravitated from other parts of the state, you know, into, uh, you know, for jobs and stuff, I'm, you know, so. Now, at that point, were the coal mines still doing the whole company store stuff and the company oh, chits? and that so, was the, almost the end of that era. Yeah, because I remember um, my grandfather showed me some of the, that he had remaining over. And for those of you who don't know, how a lot of the coal mines work, especially in the late 1800s, is the company that owned the coal mine, they would pay you in what was called a company chit. It was basically... Script. Script. And it looked like a coin, but it had some sort of hole in it that right. would, that would uh, basically assign it to that particular company. Right. And the rub is, the only people who took this coin was the store that was owned by the company. Right. You lived in the housing that was owned by the company. Right. And so you're basically working in exchange for housing and living, and you really don't have an income to go outside of your town to buy goods and services because that coin is not... It's basically like for younger kids from the 80s and 90s, it's kind of like going to putt-putt or an arcade, it's putting your money and getting the coins to play arcades, but you couldn't take those coins to other arcades because they weren't eligible there. And so you're kind of kind of trapped. They, they basically owned your existence for a good... as far as your housing and food went. And so if you wanted to leave the area or go purchase other goods and services, you almost had to find an alternative form of employment. But seeing how you're in a big depression, as you said, you couldn't even get a job mowing the lawn. Right. And so it, it really made things harder. And that's what ended up leading to the big coal mine wars, the, union, right. the unionization of coal mines. Right. And as you said, at this point, that was kind of at the end of its at lifespan. Yeah. Well... Uh, I'll tell you a story of our own family. Uh, of course, uh, 
we owned that house okay. in Farmington. And, uh, of course, the, the Depression closed the mines down. So my dad didn't have a job, so he migrated to uh, to Youngstown, Ohio, and got a job in the steel mills there. And he worked the steel mills for a while. And then a job opened up in Ritchieville, Pennsylvania, which is a mining job, which is was his trade. So he went to Ritchieville, uh, Pennsylvania, and we lived there for a while, a short time. And then the mines around Farmington started opening up. And so he got a job at Carolina, which was one of those uh, mines that ringed, uh, uh, was a ring around uh, Farmington. And, uh, but they, they would not hire you unless you lived in their house. So we had to rent our house out to, and so that we lived in a company house. <laughs> and, and so you're... And we, li we, we lived in that company house probably for, oh, two or three years. And then finally there was a uh, sort of a war with the uh, rebellion with the miners against the company's policy. And they, used, they had their own police force, the company did. Kind of like the Pinkertons, but not yeah. the Pinkertons. They were yeah, they rode on horseback and stuff. I remember that as a kid, and uh, and of course a lot of people attacked. You know, they attacked each other and had a lot of problems. And finally, they settled it up, and we were able to move into our own house. From what I understand, the history of the term redneck actually comes from the Union Wars in the early right. 1900s, because coal miners would come from other states. Right. to help fight and how right. they distinguish themselves is they wear red bandanas right. around their neck yeah. and then the local paper started referring to them as rednecks right and they called the, the police yellow dogs <laughs> you know the company police they called them yellow dogs and so you guys are essentially forced to leave your home that's been in your family right. for a while how many bedrooms was that house was it a farmhouse was it no, a suburban it was, house it, no it was in the city it was a nice house it's still there as a matter of fact let's see it had one two three had four bedrooms and then i'm going to assume the company house you're forced to move into those are just basic houses i mean they're by far i would assume no means any great stretch compared to what you guys had moved from right but they they weren't bad houses except there was no storage okay the storage uh, was a uh, a for the kitchen and shower it was a a, a little uh, cement trough thing that went out to the street uh, that I was the sword now the the uh, toilet thing so there was, was no a, real indoor plumbing right and the toilet thing was just an outhouse so that the uh, the storage was uh, dishwater and, and that type of thing. Believe it or not, I personally know what that's like. Um, growing up, I lived with my father during the school year, but during the, the summers, I would live with my mother. And at certain stages of her life, depending on her relationship with her mother, she would either live in the trailer, because my grandmother owned five acres along the Ohio River in Kentucky. And at one end, there was a trailer, a nice double wide. Down at the other end, there was what they called the cabin, which was essentially cabin or shack that was built in the late 30s that had no indoor plumbing and it had an outhouse. And so we would capture our water in a 35-gallon barrel hooked up to the downspout. Yeah. We would use that to 
pour bleach in it, use that to mop the floors. Yeah, we did clean. the same thing. We would bathe in the Ohio River. Obviously, you'd have to go out to the outhouse at night, which is about 50 yards away, because obviously you don't want your outhouse anywhere near your living quarters. Right. And then we would have to go out to the store and bring water in. Mm. And the upgrade to that, would, when we lived in the trailer, we had a cistern. And a lot of young people nowadays, especially those who grew up in the city, have no idea what a cistern is, which is right. basically a hole in the ground, right. it's concrete line, right. and you would pay a, a water truck to come down and pay them by the load. And so when you grew up either in either of those two locations, even when you had the trailer with the indoor plumbing, when you're buying your water by the load, you were very, very cautious about water waste. Oh, yeah. Very conservation, just, yeah. So at this point, you're on the Liberty ship, you're heading over to the Marianas, and at a certain point you get there, what was your first impression when you got off the boat? Was it the heat? Was it the the weather, the palm trees? Oh, you loved the weather. <laughs> well, at that point, even, do you remember what month you landed in there? Because I know since it's below the equator, yeah. our winter is their summers and right, vice versa. Yeah, right, no, right. I, no, I, I really don't remember, remember that much about it, yeah. And so, essentially in the Marianas, you were telling me before, you, you guys were kind of like, basically is near the end of the war you're right. kind of on cleanup duty and right. and basically um preventing any sort of which at that point the japanese were kind of done there right. wasn't yeah. any real active efforts yeah. to recapture those right. areas yeah. but you guys well were the war, war had moved uh, west and uh of course uh, in in that interim i think that's whenever they broke the code and uh, had the big sea air sea battle and that really was yeah that was that was the end of the war really uh even though you know the japanese hadn't surrendered or anything but basically that was it they had no navy left and the air force left so. but as we've come to learn over time the japanese soldier was fanatical and their communications weren't that great, and so right. even as some of them left, you had the guys who were kind of out in the jungle who didn't get the oh, communication. Oh through. no, that, so was, they were, that was common. Yeah, they that were, was common. They they had no. That was even after the war was over, people got shot and killed. That was fairly common because, like I say, they were cut off. They had no communication. They were in deep bunkers, and they and were. And like I say, these guys were were uh, very dedicated. I mean, you know. They were suicidal, as a matter of fact, rather than to give up. So, because uh, you know they were told the Americans would kill them anyway. So, you know if they surrendered, they'd get shot anyway. So they had very little to lose. <laughs> yeah, the the Empire of Japan did a great job of brainwashing, not only their people but the people they occupied. And one of the stories you hear is when we took over Okinawa. The Okinawan women were so terrified because they were told that the right. Americans were not only killers, right. not only rapists, but cannibals. Right. And so there is stock footage, and you see it all the time, where these women were throwing their babies over the cliffs and then right. jumping off afterwards because they were so brainwashed right. and terrified of what would allegedly happen to them after the after they were captured. Yeah, that's that, that's very true. Like I say, it was. Uh, uh, like you say, the propaganda that they fed these people uh, were amazing. That that they could believe all of it, you know, the soldiers sure. and, and the kamikaze guys and stuff. Because, like I say, when they got in that plane, they were dead. Yeah, there was no coming back. Yeah, I think the the rule for them was to try to take out ten men for right, your one life. Right, right. The scary thing is, is that still kind of going on today in North Korea. 
if you watch some of these documentaries that come out of there, the the brainwashing in North Korea, and I'll give an example. I was watching a documentary called Inside North Korea, and the film crew went over with an eye doctor. He was granted access because one of the most common maladies over there is cataracts because they're so malnourished. Right. Even the young kids have cataracts, and so his goal was to do a thousand cataract surgeries, and I think over ten days, so it's a hundred a day. He's basically assembly lining them. And after their surgeries, they were showing all the North Koreans in this room. They all had their eye patches on. And he would bring them up one at a time and remove their eye patches. And here they are for the first time in years seeing. They didn't turn to him and thank him. They ran directly to the front of the room, unprovoked, you know, not instructed. And they started praising the dear leader in the photo of him on the wall. Because to them, it was his power, it was his majesty that did the work and not the doctor. Yeah. And they were shown inside the apartments. In the apartments, there's no photos of any of the family members. The only photos they can have on the wall is the dear leader and his family members. And they train, even to this day, they're convinced, they're told, that any day the Americans are going to invade, and it's your job to repel them. And so that level of indoctrination is still going on in 2018. Yeah. Well, it starts so young. You know, that's the thing. It starts so young that the, these you're impressionable, and it never changes, well, regardless that, of, you know, how much other information you get. And that's why Hitler started with the Hitler Youth so young. Oh, yeah. You, you, he would literally get 12, 13, 14-year-old girls, impregnate them in any means that they saw necessary. Once the children were born, they were taken over by the government, and right. from day zero and a half... They were indoctrinated all the way up until their time of service. Yeah. It's easy to indoctrinate people when they're impressionable, when they don't know anything else. When you're in the Marianas, were you doing a lot of fire missions, or was it a lot of sitting oh, and waiting? Oh, most of us sitting and waiting. We had some fire missions, you know, but uh, they were far and few. Like I say, they were far and few between. I think by that time, the war, the war had moved west you know, out of the all the islands uh, in the Philippines and all that, you know, so. And so at a certain point, the Army thought it was best suited to take your resources and move you guys into South Korea, right? where the Japanese had occupied South right. Korea. Right. And I'm assuming at that point, things kind of picked up for you, being actively involved in trying to drive out the Japanese at that point? No, actually, we didn't go into Korea until the Japanese surrendered. Okay. Okay? And whenever we went into Korea, our first admission was to round up the the, uh, Japanese soldiers and send them back home. Disarm them? Yeah, disarm them. Well, they they disarmed themselves, really, you know. Sure. But uh, it's to get rid of the Japanese soldiers because the Koreans hated them. Oh, absolutely. They really hated them. Along with the, the Chinese, China, I mean, they treated the Koreans, the Chinese. Yeah, they despised. The- yeah, they despised. Then the next admission was after that, is to round up anybody that had Japan was a Japanese ancestry and ship them back to Japan. So you're clearing out the whole country. Yeah. So the the Korean, whatever government they established, the army established there, wanted those people out of there. And uh, that's what most of our mission was, other than, you know, they put you out in the field and trained you every once in a while and marched you and, you know, to keep you in the, 
in the combat shape, you know. So at this point, you were you essentially became a police force. Well, we were occupation force. That's yeah. exactly what we were. Yeah. And how long were you stationed in Korea? Well, let's see. I left there in. Uh, I think I left there in in July. We left there in July '46, and so. Uh, and I was discharged and we went to, I think we went back to Pittsburgh, California, and then from there they discharged us. And so when you came back on the return Liberty ship, you went back to California to right. the first port? Right. But yeah, you, did, you weren't physically discharged until you took the train back to your home fort in Pittsburgh. Right. Well, yeah, they t discharged you from Pittsburgh. Uh, Pittsburgh, California. California. And then you put the ruptured duck on your classic uniform. Yeah, well, they, the funny part about it, the only thing they would they gave you when they discharged you was when it was warm there, so they give you a khaki uniform mm -hmm. and a hat and change of underwear type of thing and a train ticket or or money. They you had to ch uh, the choice of either taking a, a the fare or the ticket and. Uh, that's that was in. They put you on the train. You were out. <laughs> you were out. Uh, when you returned home, how had things changed from when you left? People. Obviously, the the depression was. I mean, I'm sure there's still people dealing with that. But at this point, the economy had picked up substantially. Oh yeah, the economy was great there. Uh, in that area, coal mines were busy. You know, and uh, did the town look different at all? Was there a lot of construction no. or no, no, no? There, there, not the town didn't change much at all. Uh, as a matter of fact, it hasn't changed much even today. Really? Yeah. But uh, one of the things is nobody paid attention to you like they do. They have you know they have big ceremonies or this time or that. Well, at this point, it's a year and a yeah. half later. You yeah. Know. So. Nobody even paid that much attention to you, and the first thing you did is got the hell out of that uniform, <laughs> put on some civvies. <laughs> when you got home, did you take advantage of the GI Bill? Did you go up to school? Oh, no, did no, you go I back did. to the coal mines? No, no, did you no. go back to? Did you ever finish washing your mom's windows? <laughs> yes, I did, but uh, no. Uh, uh, my parents were big on education because they they you know they were migrants at 16 both of them where did they migrate from, from? Hungary from, from Hungary. Hungary and uh, they're they're they had a good limit a uh, good education system in Hungary at the time but it stopped at the eighth grade okay and uh, so they were uh, edu they were educated uh, minded so they they tried to get all their kids to go to college and uh, so uh, one of the things, uh, first things that I did uh, after I got discharged, and I started this college uh, in that uh, that September. After. Where'd you go? Well, I started at Fairmont State, which is a small teacher's college at the time. And uh, because I didn't, I wasn't sure how I would fare in college. And it was local. You know, when I stayed at home and that type of thing, and uh, turned out I did pretty well, so I I transferred to the University of Miami in Florida, and that's where I graduated from '51. What did you major in? I majored in psychology and physiology. 
after you finished college, what was your first career move? Well, the first thing I did was uh, I had a year of GI Bill left. And so I, I uh, enrolled in West Virginia University for a master's degree. And, I, and so I spent my first, uh, first year after my undergrad at a university. And from there, I uh, was hired at the uh, maximum security prison in Moundsville State Prison as a psychologist. I can imagine that was uh, an experience. Yes. <laughs> I've known a few prison guards in my day. Luckily, you were, you were uh, not hands-on per se as far as that goes, but you probably, being in that major and having access to the type of people who were in prison for the multiple different things they've done, yeah. to have a first-hand access to their thoughts and our patterns and I guess their justification for doing the things they did. That was probably enlightening and scary as hell for you, I'd imagine, it, well, to a certain extent. Well, it, it was an experience, and I, and I, I kind of liked the job, uh, but I run into some problems there. Uh, they give you an office inside the compound, so uh, every time you went in and out, uh, you were searched. Even the warden was. Sure. I mean, they uh, they had a cage, and you'd turn you around, and the guard would search you. And if you went from one part of the prison to the other, they searched you again. That type of thing. And uh, I was a single guy. wasn't married, so uh, you know you have uh, your hormones just sort of cooking at that time. Mm -hmm. So you wanted a little freedom. And one of the perks of the job was that they would give you three meals a day there and also an apartment, which was up on the third floor of the prison. And so if you went out uh, night clubbing and stuff and come in at midnight, uh, they searched you and all this stuff, you know, and they were very strict, uh, the guards were, because they really controlled that prison, the guards did. I'm I'm sure that kind of affected your um, abilities, if you will, to um, bring a lady friend back home. Hey, come back to my prison right. with me. Let's well, have these coffees. What happened is, is you know, you can you can tolerate that about a month. Yeah. And then I just rented a small apartment in Moundsville, there where the prison was. So that took care of that problem. And of course, uh, whenever you went in there, uh, I'd, I'd eat breakfast and usually lunch, but never dinner because you never stayed there late. And so after a while, uh, they didn't pay that much, you know, because it was a state job. And uh, whenever I filed my income tax, I, IRS come back on me because they char they. Uh, the state of West Virginia uh, gave me three, they said they gave me three meals a day. <laughs> so they claimed you on their... And an apartment. So they almost treated you and, like a dependent. And all, all of this was oh, taxable. Wow. So <laughs> they took a lot of my salary. <laughs> they took a lot of my salary in taxes. And so uh, I thought, well, I need to move on. So, yeah. So I... Uh, I uh, found a job up in uh, in Akron, Ohio. 
Now, at some point, I believe you got into real estate. Is that correct? Well, what happened is, as I uh, uh, shopped around for jobs and stuff, you know, in my in my profession, and people were sort of reluctant to hire you for some reason because it it wasn't the kind of job that that fit into anything. Yeah. And uh, so the the only two jobs that uh, that I uh, that would that wanted to hire me one was an insurance company called American Life, and the other one was this, the state of, uh, of Ohio as because uh, I had a pretty good statistical background because of the uh, psychology, and they wanted to hire me as a statistician. Uh, the state of Ohio, and uh, the problem with the the state of Ohio, I think, it was like twenty nine hundred dollars a year. Wow! <laughs> and uh, and so uh, the the uh, insurance, the guy that run the insurance company, he impressed me. And he says, and at the, at the time, a, a successful doctor was making about ten thousand dollars a year. And uh, you could buy a car for under, you know, two thousand dollars, you know, type of thing. So he he convinced me that I could make ten thousand dollars a year if I worked. So I took that insurance job, and uh, I uh, stayed with that insurance job for probably, oh, I don't know, three or four years. And uh, did you ever reach that ten grand? Yeah, as a matter of fact, it paid the job paid well, but uh, then a, then a job opened up at uh, uh, the uh, health department. They had a uh, regional office in Chicago Falls, which is a suburb of Akron, and the job opened up uh, as an and they I interviewed for it, and the guy that was was getting promoted. Wanted a, wanted a replacement so he could move on. So he looked at my credentials and he thought I would make make a good epidemiologist. So they hired me as an epi- communicable disease epidemiologist. <laughs> and it was a great job. I loved the job. But uh, yeah, and then when, once I got working with the state of Ohio, I, I stayed there for until I retired. Not in that job, but Sure. You, you know, you got promoted and stuff, but uh, that epidemiology job was a great job. I don't think I've ever heard that phrase before. Yeah. What you are is disease detective. You know? Okay. Yeah. So when you had outbreaks or something, you'd go work on it and try to figure out the source, patient the zero, source. and all that stuff. A lot of the stuff was, uh, at the time, polio was rampant. Uh, we were still having typhoid outbreaks. Uh, a lot of food poisonings in hotels and motels and stuff like that. And uh, once in a while you get an outbreak of measles or some, some you know, something. Well, with the food poisoning and the hotels, I'm sure that's basically where the whole health department's interaction with, you know, food handling policies right. and all that probably right. was born from that because you guys discovered, hey, a lot of this is coming from unsanitary kitchens right. and right. improper food right. handling. Right, yeah. Well, some of the biggest ones uh, that that I worked on was uh, uh, 
one was a Sheraton Hotel in Cleveland, which was a probably a triple A hotel at the time. It was a good hotel. And then one one uh, that always sticks in my mind is uh, outside of Kent, Ohio. Uh, there was a restaurant uh, that a woman ran that had a high reputation, you know, statewide, and mm -hmm. and so the uh, the uh, people uh, it was the uh, uh, Pennsylvania. God, I can't remember their title. Uh, had a conference there, you know, uh, in this in this uh, at, at Kent, and they used this. This was a uh, smorgasbord type of thing. Okay, like a buffet. Yeah, a buffet, and like I say, it had a, a big reputation. People from all over went to it, and uh, of course, there was about a hundred people attended this banquet thing and uh, 70 of them were sick and some of them were serious when they were hospitalized so uh, that's one that I remembered uh, real well yeah. sure that tarnished her reputation a bit <laughs> well we we closed the restaurant we ended up closing the restaurant and it ended up involving a well you know it got contaminated ah. with the sewage yeah so yeah, like I said, I remember that one because it was a big, and these people came all the way from Pennsylvania. <laughs> what year did you move down to uh, Cape Coral? 1985. 1985. That's, that's when my uh, family became an empty nest. Okay. And uh, so, I uh, really what convinced me to to uh, I'd, I'd visited this place as a as vacation with my kids you know Sanibel and Marco and on you know occasions so I was familiar with the area so when when my kids finally uh, left home was all in college or working or doing something I uh, decided to come down and what made me uh, made up my mind to retire because I was about 58 at the time or 59 I can't remember uh, is that the people the couple of people that worked for me was much younger died on me mm. <laughs> staff people and I thought well I better stop and enjoy life I guess yeah kind of I, I guess something like that would make you reevaluate your life a little right. bit more and Right. And make you decide it's time to slow down. Right. Well, Martin, I appreciate your time. Thanks for hanging out with us today. Well, you're quite welcome. And uh, thanks for everybody for listening. Uh, my name's Don Abernathy. I am your host. And on uh, for Martin Ellix, thank you very much. And we'll talk to you all next week.